Hi, this is Carrie Mitchum. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond with your host, Stephen Brittingham. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Stephen. Be sure to visit Hollywood and Beyond on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for guest and show news, including exclusive photos, promos, trailers, as well as additional guest and show news. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the pages so that we can keep in touch with each other. Hollywood and Beyond, your home for meaningful interviews. Hi, this is Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast, your home for meaningful interviews. Some of you may not be aware that Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham originally aired over on an online radio network, that being Clear Source Radio. Several of the episodes were actually broadcast live. At the time, I was using my first microphone and recording software. Likewise, I was also writing film and television reviews, as well as written interviews for an online magazine titled Highlight Hollywood. After leaving Clear Source Radio, I moved the show over to the official YouTube channel. Eventually, in September of 2018, Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham premiered on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Podbean. Soon to follow would be iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play Music, TuneIn Radio, and Radio Public App. All past episodes were removed from the YouTube channel at that time in order to coincide with the expansion to Apple Podcasts and other listening formats. This interview is one of those oldies but goodies. Here on Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening. your flight. Oh, it's fine. Just fine. How were Tony and Zinde? Good. Yeah? Yeah, they wanted to come, but you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I no sooner started packing to come and see Felicia when this weird invitation arrives. Yeah, well, that's our little sister's handiwork. So you're not getting married? Oh, he is. I'm going to take these upstairs for you. Thank you. Dad, I'm going to need a scorecard to keep track of you and your weddings. I thought you and Mother were barely speaking. Sweetheart, Felicia wanted this to happen. It's important to her to see some peace in this family. She thinks that once your mother and I remarry, in spite of the fact that she asked us to, that eventually it'll be something that we don't regret. Hmm. Well, who knows? Maybe she'll be right.
I'm Tracy Lindsay Melchior, and we are on the road with the Daytime Emmys. Tracy. Yes. Bold and the Beautiful. How great of a journey has it been these years for you on the road to the Daytime Emmy? Oh my gosh. You know, it's been 14 years since I've played the role of Kristen Forster off and on, and it's been a great character to play, and I, I really enjoy I think there's so much left for her to do, right. and I hope I get the chance to in the future. Good evening, and welcome to episode number two tonight of Hollywood and Beyond. I'm your weekly host and creator of the show, Hollywood and Beyond, Stephen Brittingham. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I, I hope you were able to listen to episode one tonight. Wow, what an amazing episode. It was so fascinating to listen to stories of about a great man who accomplished so much in a different time of Hollywood as well. Um, so I want to thank uh, Cindy Mitchum for being my guest for episode number one. I'm equally as excited for episode number two. I am so excited that uh, this lady uh, was interested in being a guest tonight on the show. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm also contributing editor for the online magazine HighlightHollywood.com. I write movie reviews, articles, and uh, interviews, the written version uh, for the online magazine. Uh and today, on Tuesday, August 30th, something I was thinking about is that with September just around the corner, that also means that summer is starting to, to leave us bit by bit, uh, and fall is, is uh, slowly approaching. And that makes me think of the word transition, where you leave something old and you're starting something new. And I think that that word uh, has a lot of significance for the, my next guest tonight, after reading her book, Breaking the Perfect Ten, a wonderful and moving book that I couldn't put down and um, that I just read over the last few days, um, I knew that there was a lot to talk about tonight. And I'd like to go ahead and uh, welcome a lady who is very sincere about her love for the craft of acting, uh, but she also knows that Hollywood can be a very, very tough place. Um, you need to know who you are as a person and about your self-worth. But when she first arrived here, she had a lot of uh, personal uh, issues that she was dealing with, and I'm sure she'll discuss that. I'd like to go ahead and welcome the very talented Tracy Lindsay Melchior, who uh, many of you know as Kristen Forrester from The Bold and the Beautiful in particular. Uh, Tracy, hi, good evening. How are you? Hi, I'm well. Thank you for asking. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. Thank you. It's so nice to speak with you and to have you on the show tonight. Well, likewise. <laughs> well, um, uh, I really appreciate you being on. And, you know, when I was thinking about uh, coming up with some ideas for guests, and I thought of you actually rather quickly. Um, and really? I always felt like it was not just about your work, which I was already impressed with, because I'm very familiar with The Bold and the Beautiful. But I always felt that there was this other reason, and now I know why. So it was a very interesting experience after have, after I read your book. Um, it was almost like I felt like you know there was a reason I needed to have you on the show, and uh, that was a very interesting experience for me. So let's get things started right away. Um, how about we go right to the beginning, a good place to start. And uh, you were born okay. in Hollywood, but not Hollywood, California, the other Hollywood. The wrong coast, yes. The other coast, I should say. And Hollywood, Florida, that's located between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. Um, and, and what was it like um, growing up there? 
you know what? I only lived there till I was five. I don't have a ton of memories um, as far as, you know, the city itself. Most of my memories um, are very, very um, just close by, you know, family things. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she bred and showed um, Great Danes. So I was either at home with dogs everywhere or we were taking a motor home to a dog show somewhere. So that's, I don't really have a lot of memories of Florida itself because um, I don't remember much about, you know, the, the environment there as much. Sure. And uh, I noticed when I was reading your book, uh, even though you were at a very young age, you mentioned that, you know, it's very interesting. You were describing a situation at first that seemed to be very nor- normal and healthy, um, you know, uh, with, with with your home life. But then you started to reveal bit by bit that actually appearances can be very deceiving, uh, as you know. Um, for example, your mother was not a homemaker, uh, you know, uh, and because the dogs, even though you love animals and pets, um, you know, you described it that you kind of felt like you were living at their place and not the other exactly. way around. And I love that you say that because it's, it is deceiving. I mean, my mom was home with us. So, you know, there is, that sounds great, but unfortunately she was physically home with us, but we never had her, her full attention. And, um, it was, Either she was on the phone talking to somebody about breeding the dogs or, you know, doing that kind of home business that she was doing or taking care of the animals. And um, it became the, the priority. Actually, my grandmother used to say that my mom carried pictures of her dogs and never pictures of her girls. And um, so that kind of sums up the allegiance there. Well, sure. I mean, that says a lot, doesn't it? Because you you know, as parents, you always have pictures of your children. Um, I mean, you may have some pictures of your pets, don't get me wrong, but, you know, you're saying that basically they were in there and you guys really weren't, and that really said a lot, didn't it? Yeah, and, you know, I've grown a lot in my relationship um, with my mom, but to this day, she... And there's a lot of people like this, I mean, that really feel more of an allegiance to pets and to people because they feel like, you know, the pets are more loyal, the pets won't let them down. And my mom has just always found um, that relationship more safe. And, you know, that's what's her coping mechanism for how she grew up. So, um, you know, to each their own. But it did have an impact on myself. And sure. I think... You know, part of that is what led me into the career I went into. Absolutely. And I noticed that connection in the book, which I'll bring up in a little bit, um, because it's interesting how a part of your life can affect you when you start to go into something like acting, for example, uh, which we'll definitely get into. I definitely noticed that. Your father was um, was a policeman, and uh, you girls, and I say girls because you had – uh, some sisters, and you guys had a nickname, didn't you? Yeah. Well, you know, it was in the 80s, and Charlie's Angels was really popular. And ironically, I had one. I had very thick blonde hair, and then I had a sister that had very thick brown hair. And then we had a middle sister who had, like, thick, um, thinner brown hair. So uh-huh. it was like 
we really were. I was the Farrah Fawcett. My, <laughs> both my older sisters had the darker hair. One had the more thick hair. Like, um, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on her name. Jacqueline Smith, right? There you go. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, like, what's her name? Kate. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm so bad. Uh, Kate Jackson. I'm getting old, you know. What? <laughs> I think it was Kate Did Jackson. That's it. Yeah. There you go. So we kind of, um, and then our dad was the cop, so, we, you know, he was Charlie. So It, it kind of fun. fit, didn't it? Charlie's Angels. Um, yeah. And you had two sisters, is that correct? Yep. I was the youngest of three. Now, your grandparents uh, eventually moved to Colorado, um, yeah. and I noticed that you mentioned a lot that uh, you picked up on this tension between your grandmother and your mother. Uh to the extent that, um, you know, there was a lot of arguments. I'm sure you could probably feel the tension. I would imagine that that would be very uncomfortable for you at a young age. Yeah, most of that I became aware of later when I lived with my grandparents. Um, at five, my parents divorced, and my grandparents had moved to Colorado, and my mom took us to Colorado, and... Um, we lived with my parents. My mom um, was 22 years old, divorced and had five, or divorced and had three kids. Yes. Um, so she sort of, um, you know, was going through a little early midlife crisis kind of thing. Sure. And we lived with my grandparents, and that's when I really started becoming aware of the tension. And um, mm-hmm. the more there was tension, the less often I saw my mom. And um, the more less often I saw my mom, the more the tension was the next time I saw my mom. So it was just this whole snowball thing. You know, my, my mom didn't want to come around, I guess, because of the tension. And the more she didn't, the worse it got. And um, There was actually a point when my mom had come to see us, and her hair had grown so long, and she had lost a bunch of weight. I didn't even recognize her right off. And I don't... I don't have a concept of the time. I was, you know, six years old. But I just remember it being so long that um, her appearance had changed so drastically that um, it took me a while to know who she was. And, you know, Tracy, um, that moment really affected me personally because uh, to just briefly mention to those who don't know, I was adopted by my grandparents on my father's side, and I didn't know for several years that about the situation. So when I found out at a young age, it was very shocking for me. And then I started thinking, wow, I've got a a biological father and mother out there. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that I had a very similar experience with my biological father, that one day he walked in the kitchen after having not seen him for years, and I just froze. And he froze, and I realized I haven't seen this person in so, so long. And I, I, I could understand a lot of what you must have felt. It's it's like a. It's like you're almost shocked that this person is standing in front of you. Yeah, and it's. Um, and then there's, you don't know it as a young child, but there was, sort of almost like a guilt or a betrayal feeling that I had because I appreciated my grandparents for being there and the routine that they gave me, the security of, you know, just stable life. Um, but then this longing for my mom at the same time. Sure. Um, I almost felt, you know, this, um, like, where's my loyalty supposed to be? It wasn't clear. And, you know, as long as it had been seeing my mom not recognizing her, I actually went 10 years without seeing my father. 
he also tried to come visit, but then that, I'm, I'm not sure why sometimes they wouldn't let him in. He would come and knock on the door. He wasn't allowed to see us. And, you know, back then, fathers didn't have the same rights um, back then. It wasn't the same um, where today, you know, it's like the 50-50 custody kind of thing. And right. He was able to take us out of state. And, um, and I'm not sure... Um, you know, he, he made efforts. He paid the child support every month. He sent a birthday card, you know, without fail and a Christmas card every year without fail to his credit. But when you're not, you don't have a bond with them. They're your dad, but you haven't bonded with them. You know, he never picked me up when I scraped my knee or um, held me when I cried for anything or read me a story at night, all those things. But um, they're familiar, but they're not. And, strange feeling. And, you know, Tracy, those descriptions you're giving, you know, the scraped knee, reading stories, you know, to some that may sound maybe not very significant, but when time goes on and you start adding all of the, that together, how much you've missed, it really does become a bigger issue, doesn't it, internally? It becomes huge because here's the thing, what I learned as a woman, your father is the first um, – you know, platonic love you ever have, you know, so it's, you know, and for a boy, it's their mother, and and it teaches you how to have that form of a relationship without it being about what you think it is as a teenager, and if you don't learn, you know, um, that sort of safety with a man and comfort and that you're more than just your sexuality, and if you don't learn that from your dad, it's really hard to learn later in life. And it's usually through a lot of trial and error and, um, you know, unsavory uh, situations. So I, I I just can't say enough how important it is, you know. And there's always been jokes, you know, about, you know, women in strip bars or whatever. It's like, oh, daddy issues and all that kind of stuff. But it's not a joke. It's sadly true. Um, you long for that um you know, attention from a man, and somehow women are taught that's the only way to get it, you know, because you didn't get it from your dad. Sure. And uh, that was very well said by you. And let's just backstep a little bit, if you don't mind, only because... Okay, sorry, I'm going ahead. Oh, no, you're you're doing outstanding. I really appreciate it. I, I was just thinking that some folks out there might want to know, though, when you uh, took a trip with your parents... Uh, before you moved in with your grandparents. So I'm yeah. stepping back here. You took a trip to uh, the California coast, which eventually would lead you to your grandparents. And mm-hmm. before I bring that up, though, I, you mentioned that your favorite time on that trip was attending uh, Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> yeah. And Ironically. when you live right by it now. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that something? Uh, yeah. And now you're right by it. And of course, that makes sense. A young girl would be thrilled with that place. But when you got to your grandparents, you and your sisters didn't really realize that, I mean, you were going to be left there, not just for the summer, but you were going to be starting school there. Yeah. And... And then you've mentioned what's happened since then. You know, obviously you didn't see your mom and you didn't see your dad and your grandparents took care of you. So what's coming to my mind is you are experiencing a lot of give and take, as I call it. You're here. You're there. You're uncertain about this. You're uncertain about that. You, you want to you, you reach out to your mom. I'm sure that you were conflicted like you said. 
you want to show appreciation to your grandparents, but you also want to let your mom know that you miss her. It had to be very, uh, very uh, uh, difficult situation to kind of muddle through at a young age. Oh yeah, I mean it was um, it, the hard. I don't know how to I, I, just to also fill in some blanks. My cousin lived there also. My mom's sister's son, my grandparents adopted. Now he was officially adopted by them, and it was like almost you know that my grandma was like in her fifties, and she's got four kids now that she's raising, and she did a fantastic job. But at this point. They were exhausted, you know, when you think about there's a reason we have kids younger, I think, so we can have that energy. Right. And um, here, here they are with four kids starting. They've already raised four kids. Mm. They're raising four other kids. And um, my grandfather got diagnosed with um, diabetes, which he actually ended up dying from complications of it very young. He was in his 50s. Um, and But there was a lot of where I felt not because of anything they did, but, I mean, we just, we sense things. I've always been very, like, yes. intuitive um, and um, empathetic to how people are feeling. And there was almost a sense of feeling like a burden to me, you know. So I always felt like I had to um, not be too loud, not cause any trouble, um, were a guest. It felt like, you know what I mean? Like when you're a guest in someone's home and it's a different sure. feeling. There wasn't the same security. It was like I could be uninvited anytime, and actually was uninvited eventually. Um, so my worst fear had come through, um, come true. I mean, and you learned that your parents' relationship was unfortunately over. Although you, I'm sure, held out hope that it, that wasn't true. But you learned that otherwise when uh, your mom became involved with a different person, and your dad became involved with a different person. And did that kind of start to sink in that, wow, that hope that they would reunite was was basically over? No, you know what? For me, I didn't even, the whole concept of marriage and divorce, it was just, I was so young and so naive that that kind of, you know, we're talking five, six years old. So it wasn't so much like about their relationship and their issues. Um, I can only see it through my little five-year-old eyes and all I remember is one time them yelling, screaming, having a fight and my dad leaving and watching through the window him leave and remembering that he didn't come back for days and days and days, you know, kind of thing. Like, so certain fights I remembered but what happened is in your little mind is you're like, oh, so if you can get a new husband or wife, a new mommy or a daddy, you can get new kids too and so everyone's replaceable. So this whole, like, where's your value, what worth do you really have if you can just throw them out and get another, was subconsciously what, now looking back, I realized how I was feeling. Sure. And, and more insecurity. More, oh, absolutely. More, you know, um, self-esteem issues. Yeah, you're, you know, if, what, even at that young age, you're just sensing all kinds of different situations and um, trying to get it all sorted out. Um, and eventually, you actually moved back with your father to Florida. Yeah, at one point when he remarried, um, he and my stepmom um, came in a motorhome, picked us up from my grandparents' house. And it was actually just me and my middle sister. My oldest sister at this point, I believe, was um, 15 or 16 and didn't want to go. 
So it was just me and my um, middle sister, so two years older. And we had just the greatest time in the motorhome, driving back. Everything was, you know, we're back with our dad. And my stepmom was wonderful. I mean, she really, she wanted to be a mom. She was made to be a mom. She um, embraced us. My dad had, like, made furniture for our room and, like, stained each different color for our room. They'd made our beds each. You know, I mean, they really went all out. And like I said, my grandma made a wonderful home for us. And back then, you know, they didn't have all the instant meals and stuff. She was cooking every night. Right. So not to to slight her, but my stepmom was much younger and had so much more energy and, you know, than my grandparents. So we were just, like, excited and um, embracing that, you know, there was just this more um, positive feeling about us being there. You know, people were delighted that we were there. Um, and so that became a great feeling, but unfortunately my sister really longed and missed home and decided she wanted to come back and I wasn't willing to stay without my sister. So, um, it was short lived. I, I don't even believe it was an entire school year. I want to say maybe a few months, maybe six months tops, but we stayed there. And, you know, uh, from that moment though, when you moved back with your, um, grandparents, uh, a lot of time would go by before you would um, have more communication from your father. Was that right? Was there, did that create Actually, that's a void? Actually, that is when it stopped. For, that's when I didn't see him for 10 years after that. I see. So I think I was about seven at that time. And it wasn't until I think I was 17 that I saw him again. And as you're yeah. starting to become a teenager and, and grow up, you've You've been in a few different locations and uh, all of this going on. I, I was just thinking about how you, you know, you might have really longed for a sense of true home. And um, was that something that you used to think about? Well, yeah. I mean, um, I never felt secure. And, you know, my like I talked about how feeling like a guest in my grandma's house and feeling like I could be uninvited. When my grandfather passed away, there was some big fight between my mom and grandmother, and my grandma threw us out. So my mom got a place, rented a place nearby, but then my stepdad still had his own place, and she was spending a lot of time with him still, so we were alone a lot, and um, neighbors would kind of take us in or invite us over, and, you know, so we were just kind of little orphan annies a little bit. Um, Right. And, you know, my mom would come by and stock the fridge or take us out for popsicles and you know it was wonderful or we'd go to my stepdad he was um a newscaster in colorado and made very good money and um had this huge house on a golf course he actually lived right across from john hinckley jr's parents um up in evergreen and um we would go there and it was just it was so like one side of the pendulum to the other. We would go with right. them, and he was like a local celebrity, and we would go to fancy restaurants and blah, blah, blah. And then sometimes we would just go back to this rental house where she still had all the dogs, and we would take, we were 10 and 12 years old, taking care of five Great Danes and getting ourselves to and from school sometimes and, um, you know, well, living that, in smaller. That, that um, actually shocked me, if you want to know the truth. Um I, I mean, you and your sister was basically left alone mm-hmm. at, at this property. 
we're talking. But we had the dog, so I think you, that was the rationale. You, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you had the dog, so I guess we were you know, safe. We had five great days, you know. And and but basically, there was no one there to cook meals for you, uh, clean no. up the house, or you know, uh, the set rules, or to help you in those ways. So I mean, that's really. Um, an amazing story to me that that you that you were both left alone for such long periods of time. Yeah, and my mom would argue the length of time, and you know that kind of thing. I know there were nights we went asleep uh, alone. I know we came home to an empty house. I know we got ourselves to school many a times on our own. Many a times we didn't. Many a times we were late. Sure. Um, you know, <laughs> we oh my gosh, we had so many absences and tardies. It was so humiliating. And then on top of it, you know we're. 10 and 12 years old, and we were living in a house with five dogs. So, right. you know, there was not a lot of cleanliness, and we always um, always felt like we stunk, and we were, you know, just just didn't walk around with my head held very high. Sure, um, sure. You know, because if you think, geez, not even my parents want to spend time with me, why would this girl at school want to spend time with me? So I would assume that nobody wanted me. So I had a really hard time making friendships. I could be civil and kind, but as I started getting close, I would push people away because I was like, to know me is to love me because no one knows me better than my parents and they think I'm, you know, crummy and don't want to be around me. So don't let anyone get too close. Yeah. So it sounded like there was uh, obviously affecting you in other ways. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, you're with making friendships and and basically not in the most healthy of environments, of course, very obviously. Um Yet you just kind of kept doing your thing and and um, trying to get through it the best that you can. Um, yeah, I, I I noticed that you mentioned about um, uh, the gentleman that the newscaster that was involved with your mom that uh, you just didn't feel like he was really into being quote unquote a, a you know a full time committed stepdad. No, he he was he was nice to us. He was polite. He was kind. But, um, you know, he went from working the evening news to starting to do, like, the 5 a.m. news. And I'll never forget, it was like we always, like, at 7 o'clock at night, it was like, shut up, John's sleeping. And, you know, and it was always, like, about him. And because he was, you know, the star and the moneymaker and, you know, the guy she's trying to impress and didn't want to annoy him with her kids. We always had to be, like, on this best behavior when we were around him, and he was nice. I mean, he, he was never nasty or mean or, or anything like that. But right. we were just someone else's kids to him. Right. You know? And, and, and you could probably sense that, obviously. Yeah, I mean, to be anything else, I mean, at the time he came into our lives, you know, my one sister's 12. I mean, to be too trying to force yourself to be our dad might have been weird, too. So maybe he was sure. expecting that, you know, we have a dad, or, but um, it just, to us, it was just, and, and I'm not feeling sorry for myself, just to kind of explain, but it was like, when you're sad or whatever, it wasn't like, like my kids now, where it's like the first thing they want to do is look for me and run to me, you know, we just didn't have that person, right. you know, and that's kind of... Um, you know, like my one son, he can be playing with his dad, but the second he gets hurt, he's looking for his mom. And he knows that that's the one safe place to go, and we just didn't have that person. Well, moms are very special people. And uh, yeah. so that's probably why you're, you know, your son's seeking you out. 
Um, yeah, and to my mom's credit, I mean, my mom was, was that person when she was around. She was very nurturing and right. um, kind when you had her attention, you know, but it was getting her attention that was never easy. Right, and, um, you know, in no way am I saying that she was um, only this kind of person or that person, and you're not either. It's just yeah. this was the reality of the situation. And, um, right. you know, and, and, you know, like with my biological father, uh, in my situation, in and out of my life, lots of letdowns and broken promises. But he was such a friendly and kind person that that's what made it extra hard for me. If he'd been a really mean and unfriendly person, so to speak, that might have changed my my perspective. But that always made it harder for me that that he was really a friendly person. You liked him. <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, It'd be easier if you hated him, I guess. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And I'm wondering, when did resentment start to build up in you? Or I'm uh, assuming no, that at some point you might have started to, you know, take this situation where you're like, hey, what's going on here? Um, well, I, I never, I don't know if I would use the word resentment, but like, you know, like I was talking about not letting people close something must be wrong with me. Um, I started my, I turned it inward. I had like a self-loathing um, personality. So, I mean, it was most turned inward. Um, I, I would say maybe the resentment came later in life. Like later in, in life. Like in my 1820s when I started thinking about, hey, wait a minute. Right. This is how, you know, this isn't how it should have been. And, you know, that kind of thing. When you start getting more aware as a kid, you're just thinking, okay, I'm not sure what's going on or why, you know. And eventually you moved uh, into your aunt and uncle's home? I did. And that was just um, because I got busted going to a different school um, out of my district. Um, Because you had a lot of trouble at the school you were attending, didn't you? Uh, a little bit. My mom yeah. um, went from Great Danes to horses. So oh. <laughs> we moved to this remote small town um, called Elizabeth, Colorado, which is beautiful. Love it there. And I mean, now that I'm away, I would love to go back to, you know, something so rural. Sure. But um, the small town life was difficult because, well, one, I moved to this school as a seventh grader, and I started to kind of come together, and I was getting kind of cute, and um, when you go into a small town and you're the new kid, all of a sudden you're just new, and you're different, and they, you know, they knew all these girls when they had, um, you know, when they were in kindergarten, and they're like their sisters, so it's like, now you're like the new girl, so I was getting a lot of attention from all the guys at school um, in seventh grade, and it was just something I wasn't old enough to know how to handle, but craved attention, and it was just kind of a um, a bad mix. <laughs> sure. So, yeah. And uh, uh, you made a very good friend there, fortunately, uh, mm-hmm. but you made this friend, uh, unfortunately, from a, 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 a situation that, you know, no one would want to be in. You wound up in basically a trash can. And... <laughs> When I was reading this, I guess it was you couldn't get yourself out of it. That, well, they tuck your butt in, and then it's like a suction cup. Yep, yep, you're stuck. Yeah. 
it's not like you're standing in a trash can, your butt's tucked in. So there's no way. The only way is to like kind of tip yourself forward, but then the thing hits you on the back of the head when you land down oh, and my. trying to, it's like a suction cup and it's humiliating. And this girl came over to help you though. Yeah, this was, you know, again, all the girls started hating me because all the boys now were like, oh, the new girl, you know, and not that I was so special. I'm not trying to say like, oh, I was so hot or anything, but it was just new. And um, so all the girls started getting mad at me because the boys were interested in me. And so I was just like, I had to watch my back every day. And so it was a, it wasn't just her, it was a group of those girls. And um, yeah, it was... <laughs> uh, unpleasant yeah it sounds like it and you know the atmosphere you described uh was one that you eventually did not want to be a part of and i think that had a lot to do with you wanting to attend a school in a different area you know so that you could have a different uh more positive environment yeah i was starting to well one thing happened is i when we moved there i moved mid semester and they needed to to find an elective course for me, and nothing had any openings but a theater class. And so I ended up, bad enough that you're in a new school, and now you got to do, like, theater. I was like, God hates me. You know, it's true. Everyone hates me. <laughs> I must have done something really bad to deserve this. I thought it was such a curse, but it, this is not the first time in my life the curse turned into a blessing, and I ended up really liking it. And some... Other, this is a very small school, um, and I think we had like 80 people in my class, the entire grade. I mean, <laughs> was 80 people. Wow. And, um, you know, I started hearing about this school one city over that was brand new and that they had this great theater department, and some other kids were starting to go over there, and, you know, that kind of thing started happening, and I just, um, decided that's what I wanted to do. And, um, somehow got enrolled over there, but the vice principal lived, like, right on the county line and saw me drive past her <laughs> going oh, to the no. school, and so she investigated, and um, luckily my aunt and uncle lived within the district, and I was able to move in with them for my senior year of high school. And your friend that helped you with, with that trash can situation, she actually yeah. decided to attend that school with you, is that right? Yeah, you know what, I can't remember now if she went first and that was part of why I went or if we went at the same time or, uh-huh. or something like that. But, yeah, she was, um, her dad was a police officer in um, Elizabeth in the small town. It was like the sheriff, you know, the one sheriff. Or sure. And, um, it was kind of cool. And, and Good friend to have. Little, yeah, she became my personal, like, security, and she was very sure. good to me. Well, that's good. And when you were discovering drama, I'm sure that you noticed that it was helping you, at least to a certain extent, with areas where maybe you felt you were neglected or you felt really empty in because you're getting attention. Maybe people are giving you compliments if they enjoy your performance or if you did a good job and applause. What was that like for you doing a play, even in high school, and hearing that applause for the first time? You know, I think that came later. Um, I think what first started me interested in it at, in like seventh grade, which is when I first got into the, the drama classes, was I was so, like, I wanted to make sense of stuff. Like, I always had, like, I, I wanted to make sense. 
things need to make sense to me. You know, it's like, I, I sure. can't just accept, well, that's just the way it is. Well, but why? You know, that's always been <laughs> my personality. And with acting, it's it's just a study of human behavior. Yes. You know, trying to figure out this character. Well, it started like, it was like therapy for me. And so that was the original draw to it, is to understand human nature. And then when I finally started getting to perform, because it was just a class and we would do little things or whatever, but then when I started doing plays, um, when I moved to um, Ponderosa High School, I, um, yeah, it was. It was like, okay, people can see me. People can hear me. Because I never felt like I could be seen or heard. I was like, should I use my invisible powers for good or evil? (laughs) Because I felt invisible. And I was like, well, I'll be darned. Look at all these people sitting quiet and actually caring that I'm standing here and that I'm talking. Because I always felt, like I said, we had to be shushed. Um, we, we had company over. It was just, you know, perform and be polite and don't make anyone look bad. You know, kicked under the table to be quiet. So it was like, wow, I can be seen and heard. And then, yes, of course, the applause and, and all of that kind of validation that was um, so missing in my childhood. Well, and such an excellent description you have of really what acting is really about. I mean, I totally agree with you. Um, you may not know this, but I also have a background in acting. Um, I did look that up. I oh, okay. That. Well, you're on top yeah. of things. <laughs> um, I don't talk to just anybody, you know. <laughs> that's right. And um, that's great. But, you know, it is the study of characters, uh, of individuals, I should say, when you portray a character. And, you know, Here's the tricky thing about acting, Tracy, is that sometimes you may play someone that's doing a lot of scrupulous things, but it doesn't mean that you're trying to promote that behavior. It is an example or a story of why this character did what they did, not to make an excuse for this behavior, but that's a part of what makes acting fascinating. But Tracy, haven't you found over the years it gets tricky, though, because there's a difference between my description and your description – and those that take the exploitation approach, because there is a difference. If you're doing something just to exploit a, a story or situation, it has an empty feeling to it, I think, personally. But if you're sincere of heart with your performance and the story, it, it changes everything, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, you can't be self-indulgent in acting. It, it's like, so it's glaringly obvious. Um, and, you know, like you talked about, like, the different, like, types of characters. Sometimes, you know, like, somebody has to play Pontius Pilate. Even if you perform the Bible, there's going to be bad guys. And, you know, and, you know, because as I'm a Christian and I've had, um, you know, some of my uh, fellow Christians, like, try and ridicule or judge me for being able to be an actor. And how can you play that part? And it's like, because even if we perform the Bible, somebody's got to play not just pilot, you know, it's like, sure, it's, sure. You know, regardless, there's, there's good and bad. And I just believe that every person has a redeemable quality. Every person, even the worst person in the world is usually all the anger is covering so much hurt and pain. You know, and when you play, um, the bad person, let's say, um, nobody thinks they're the bad person. You know, they usually don't. Most people feel completely justified and have justified why they are the way they are. Well, he shouldn't have done that then. Or, well, then that's just because they, you know, I'm just very honest. 
very upfront. That's just too bad. That's just how I am. You know, it's like people, they justify all their behavior. Look at the prisons. They're full of people that have justified sure. and um, that are innocent, you know? So when you play a character, you're not like, oh my gosh, you have to become this bad person to play this person. Um, you learn how to, people can justify anything. And one thing that I've noticed about you is when I was reading your your fantastic book um, is I really felt your sincere love for the craft of acting. It's just something oh. that jumped out at me, probably from your descriptions. And um, so uh, I just thought that was really wonderful and probably is one reason why you're such a talented actress. Um, uh, and I'm so glad you got that from it because I really do. I mean, I actually credit act. I mean, it was my group therapy. I studied with the great Larry Moss, and he has been thanked from the Academy Award podium. Hillary Swank uses him as her onset coach for his. I mean, he is so immensely talented. And his assistant, Michelle Danner, who I studied with before I was anointed to go onto Larry's class, and um, they were just so amazing. I mean, you would just. I knew, I spent, I think, four years at that acting studio, two nights a week from like 5 till 11 o'clock at night. Wow. Um, I didn't have much money for the class, so I was his work-study and Michelle's work-study student, which meant I took the attendance, um, and I, you know, put the list up when people said they wanted to do a scene. I wrote it down for him and prepared him his list every week, and I had little chores. And... um I knew that if I never acted professionally a day in my life, I never wasted a minute in that class for what I learned about compassion and empathy and putting yourself in someone else's shoes and never assuming and never just, you know, people can say one thing, but getting the subtext under it, you know, there's different, people talk about honesty, but there's there's no such thing as just blatant honesty. There's different levels of honesty. Sure. And so many people live with the surface honesty, but let's get to the under, you know, a couple more layers down of the real honesty. And that is what I learned in acting class that would never be a waste of time. With my kids right now, it's like when they're misbehaving or acting out a certain way, I can look past the obvious, like, oh, they're saying this, you know, and they're mad and angry and too bad. I can be like, you feel like, Nobody cares that, you know, but Pokemon's really important to you, and I get that, you know. So it's like <laughs> you can kind of put yourself more in their shoes. Like, sure. Yeah, they're being ridiculous that I'm not taking them to catch this Pokemon over there because to me it's ridiculous, but to them it's the world. And if I can get that and validate that, I, I'm a better parent because of it. I think I'm a better friend. And um, but Studying acting should be required of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you do learn a lot, and I always loved training. I, I thought training was – because like you just described so well, you, you learn so much about yourself in the process. Um, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I really enjoyed about training. Um, mm-hmm. And if we just fast forward a little bit because uh, you've just established how you became interested in acting and when you got to California – were you overwhelmed at first with the fact that there's so many people in Los Angeles that want to be actors as well? Or did you feel like you were home or that you were really fitting in? Um, well, I was, you know, kind of a big deal in Colorado. Not as big of a deal when I came here, <laughs> for sure. Um, but I just, um, you know, everybody talks about like plan B and I guess that's good advice. Yes. But I just, 
that was what I came to do. And failure wasn't an option. And I, I just, one of the things Larry used to say in class is obstacles are those things you see when you take your eye off the goal. So I didn't ever see the obstacles. I only saw the goal. That's all I focused on. And, um, you know, there were things I had to do. I had to work a regular job when I first came here and, um, you know, getting settled and established and starting to figure things out. Um, but, you know, it's just, like I said, it was like there was not, not a feeling like this is too big for me. It's like, what do I need to do? And every time I had, like, I had one modeling agent, um, which I didn't try to get into modeling, but uh, I was teaching aerobics as an income. And um, a guy, I wish to this day I could thank him. I have no idea who he was, but he's like, you should model. And I'm like, what? No, I'm an actor. And he's like, well, you could model to make some money. And, and a friend of mine has an agency, and he gave me her number. So I set up an appointment with this um, agent, and her name was Irina Kamal, and she was actually... Um, had just left the Playboy modeling agency and started her own agency. So it was me and, like, Pam Anderson and all these, you know, playmates. Uh-huh. And um, she at first was like, well, where's your portfolio? And I'm like, I don't have a portfolio. I've never modeled before. And she's like, well, get a portfolio and come back. And I said, do you like my look? And she's like, yeah. I go, do you think I can work? And she goes, yeah. But I go, I don't know how to get a portfolio. I'm new to town. I don't know who to shoot with and what kind of stuff to shoot. I go, help me get a portfolio. If you like my work, help me. And she's like, okay. <laughs> she gave me a list of some photographers that were testing. And I actually got into Screen Actors Guild through her because she started, um, she was just doing modeling, but then she opened up a commercial um, part to her agency. And I got my first um, commercial, Riding Horses, Bareback on the Beach for an Old Spice commercial. And there I you got go. Screen Actors yeah. Well, um, and I know that you were also still evolving as a as a person, though, weren't you, uh, internally? Oh, yeah. This wasn't like you went to California and you had everything sorted out. You you were still processing your experiences back in Colorado, and, um, you know, that's a, a, a part of a journey that you were on. And But if we move forward to um, your uh, time on Sunset Beach, which uh, – Interesting show uh, with the Aaron Spelling connection, and uh, I'm sure you were just thrilled to be on that show. Oh, yeah. And you described how that's like a almost like a normal job for an actor in the sense that, you know, usually Monday through Friday and the hours are somewhat similar, give or take a few here and there. And so you must have really enjoyed that experience, I assume. Perfect balance, and I kind of went into soaps, kicking and screaming because I've been studying with Larry, who, you know, was coaching Academy Award winners. So for him, soap operas was like really. So it was kind of, you know, like um, something I felt was beneath me, or so you know, from my classes. And I kind of went kicking and screaming. Kind of how that happened is um, my commercial agent, who I followed to a new agency, not now had theatrical. Um, my photograph was on the desk of a guy, um, one of the agents, and they had a soap opera division back then because soaps were, you know, there was 10 or 12 of them on sure. the air back then. Yeah. And he saw my picture, and he's like, oh, I want to use her for soaps. I want to submit her. And so he really, like, pursued me and um, convinced me. He's like, soaps are great. Don't don't turn your nose up at them. You'll find you love <laughs> them. And God bless him. He's my manager to this day. That was 20 great. years ago, I think. And... um his name's Michael Bruno, and he um, convinced me to go out for Sunset Beach. And 
he told me, he said, look, you're probably not going to get it. Cause he was always like that. He's like, you're probably not going to get it because they're screen testing like all these other um, actors that have done soaps before. And you're a first time. So, you know, but just go in there so they get to know you. And so I was one of eight. And um, he couldn't believe it when he called me and said, how far is the drive? Because I was outside of L.A. at the time. And I'm like, it's about an hour to NBC. And he's like, well, you're going to be making it a lot. Yeah. Uh, lots of traffic issues, no doubt. Um, yeah, it was worth it. <laughs> have to get up a little bit it. earlier. It is, it's such a great job because it's like, like you were saying, I'm sorry to get back to your question. It's like you get your schedule in advance, usually about two weeks ahead. You know which days sure. you're working. Um, so you can plan, you know, doctor's appointments or, you know, whatever it is. And you have a guaranteed income you know, um, which is nice. And, you know, where you're going to park. It's not like auditioning where you're looking around right. for parking. <laughs> and <laughs> it's thing. very challenging, isn't it, Tracy? Yes. I mean, uh, boy, you really have to be on top of your craft and come prepared. Yeah, you know what, soaps, I, I, to the, I'm shame on me for turning my nose down. I really look at soaps as like boot camp for any actor. I mean, you're getting a ton of material Yes. very next day, and you don't, you don't know where the story's going. You don't know what's going to happen after, you know, you might have a script for the following week and or scripts up to the following week, but that's as far as you know and just trying to make it work. And uh, if, it's Trace, in, if it's in focus, it's on TV, too. It's yes. not like you get... Yes, <laughs> and um, like you said, there was a lot of those... Uh, a lot of uh, daytime soap operas on at that time period, a lot of competition, so um, you had to be extra good and uh, I, I'll get to your time on The Bold and the Beautiful, and I definitely want to discuss your faith. But just really quick, you were on Sunset Beach, I believe, for less than a year when you got the news that the show was not going to be renewed. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I was so – you got to be kidding me at that moment. I was actually working that day, and I was discussing um, – very colorfully with a director. We were disagreeing on how to shoot a scene or where I should be or whatever it was. We were having some creative differences. I mean, not terrible. I mean, it wasn't, you know, but it was like, no, I really think I should storm off there or, you know, one of those things. It's like, <laughs> no, I'd rather you stay. And I'm like, yeah. no. And then the president of NBC comes in and tells us this news as a cast and crew together. And I'm like, okay, we can shoot it however you want. <laughs> hey, at this point, go for it. Yeah, Let, let's go ahead Whatever. and experiment here a little bit. <laughs> oh, so well, and um, I, I, and you know, for me, you know, you talk about my stability issues, and it really brought up so much of that because mm -hmm. I felt like I found a home there. Yeah, you know, it was my first ongoing job. You know, before I was doing like a guest star, so I was still a guest. You know what I mean? Sure. I was under contract for the first time. It felt like home. I had a dressing room that was mine. I had the same hair and makeup person every day. I knew where I was parking. I, it became home. I belong here. People want me to be here. They, you know, expect me to show up. Those kind of things that when you've gone through so much abandonment and neglect, sure. and you've got people making sure you have clean underwear. I mean, they put bras and underwear even in my dressing room. It was like someone was <laughs> taking care of me. They made right. sure I had food. Yes. I was fed. They made sure I had breakfast. Did you eat, Miss Lindsay? Would you like me to grab you? I mean, it was like nurturing more than just, oh, I'm working. So for me, it was like, are you kidding me again? The rug is being pulled out from under me? It was... Right. Uh, 
And then you bounce back by landing a role on The Bold and the Beautiful, which if you're going to bounce back, that's that's definitely a recommended route to go. And I say that because, um, you know, with uh, Mr. Bill Bell, uh, a man that I admire, uh, I've described him to others as a master storyteller. It was like a family affair, which you would know this better than me, but just the people that I talked to, he cared so much about his shows, The Young and the Restless and The Bold and the Beautiful, head writer, producer, was involved with all kinds of aspects. Um, what was that experience like on your time well, on The Bold and the Beautiful? I think it always comes back to he's successful because he's creative and he's a good story writer, yada, yada. Yes, of course. Yes. But it comes down to how they treat people, too. Yes. And um, after Sunset Beach got canceled, I said, if I don't get a pilot, I want to get pregnant. I was married at the time. <laughs> and we ended up getting the pregnancy thing instead. So I had a son, and I think I ha- he was like four weeks old when I got the call for this audition for The Bold and Beautiful by my manager, the same guy that I had gotten with years ago. And um, he's so funny. He knows me so well. He's like, Tracy, stop eating start moving and get your roots done. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, we've got something coming up on the bold and beautiful. You're perfect for. And I'm like, Oh my God, I I got off the phone with him and I went and looked in the mirror. My roots were, you know, over an inch long because I just had a baby and I wasn't getting my hair done and I was overweight. Anyway, so I did exactly that. I tried to get in the best shape I could. But um, when I first started back on that, I was, I think 17 to 20 pounds overweight. Oh, over yeah. my normal weight. Sure. Um, and anyway, so when I auditioned for it, I was, you know, I mean, my gosh, I was still lactating when I was away from my child too long, and I was just stressed out. But um, when I ended up booking it, um, my mom was my nanny who came to work with me. And um, I remember I had heard that they're okay with you bringing your kid. And the first day, I get a call from Brad Bell, and he's like, hey, I just want to say welcome to the Bold and Beautiful family. How's your first day going? And I'm like, it's great. And he goes, did you bring your son? And I said, no, I didn't. And I go, but I heard that's okay. And he goes, not only is it okay, we insist. Wow. And I'm like, what? And he goes, my father always told me, never keep a mother from her children. Who does that? So next thing I know, I'm getting asked by, you know, the stage crew about what I want in my dressing room. They put a crib in, they put a refrigerator in there and, you know, whatever I needed wow. to like store milk bottles and that's great. That they made it, um, very accommodating. My son was with me in the hair and makeup chair. Um, he was with me during rehearsals. Of course, once cameras were rolling, he had to get out because he didn't care about tape. He was loud. Yes. But, um, yeah, he was pretty much with, and it was fun because they shot the prices right on the um, stage right there. Yes. So my mom would like he'd go spin the wheel when he was bored or oh, sit wow. in the cars. They were <laughs> all the prizes, row a canoe. You know, it was fun. And and Tracy, before I ask you about your faith and just to share some thoughts about your journey, how it is now today, um, I have to ask you what it was like working with uh, both Susan and John. Oh. My gosh, John McCook is hilarious. <laughs> you don't see that on the show, but that boy is so funny, and he breaks yes. into like song, and you know he's just funny. He's That's a jokester. Great. He's delightful. He's one of he's a very nurturing, warm, kind person. I don't think I've ever heard a negative thing out of his mouth, or you know, That's no matter what. And 
as far as Susan Flannery, if we have time, I'll tell you a quick story that kind of sums up the kind of person Susan Flannery is. When I first started on The Bold and the Beautiful, now she's a you know, queen diva on the show, right? We all agree. Sure. When I first started, we were still doing morning green room rehearsals, which any soap actor knows. We go in this green room, and the director tells you like where you're going to cross and when you're going to cross, and you do your blocking. Sure. Well, it never failed. Then you get on the set, and you realize the stage isn't even set up how they thought it was going to be, and it's not going to work. And, okay, now let's give you your blocking different. I mean, it was always just kind of a waste of time, everybody felt. But it was something that had just been established, and they just kept doing. Right. Well, Susan Flannery got us all out of it. Now, other shows, other divas have gotten themselves out of the morning rehearsal. Susan Flannery got everybody. Wow. Well, that, that's that an accomplishment. Yeah, well, she just went to them <laughs> and said she felt it was a waste of time and, you know, whatever everyone sure. else did to get themselves out of it. Yeah. She did it for everybody. Wow. She didn't just worry about herself and her own comfort and her time. She said it's a waste of time for everybody. We're fine. We don't need it. And what an amazing actress. I'll tell you, some of those oh. intense scenes are, are, are very uh, impressive indeed. Oh, um, my gosh. Let me just tell you. If anybody ever asked me the most nervous I've been as an actor, I'll say when I had to do a like strip tease dance on Hercules. That I was very nervous about. <laughs> the second was having to do scenes with Susan Flannery. And I've worked with Eddie mm-hmm. Murphy and Billy Crystal, but Susan Flannery, she scared me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, she, she's a, a dynamic actress. And um, oh. I, I know that people used to describe that about Larry Hagman, that they've told me uh, that some actors, no matter how fun he was, because Larry was a very fun person, but during certain scenes, it, some people described it like it almost felt like he was looking right through you, that it gave him chills because he was just so into character, you know, much like Susan. Um, no, she was um, – the thing about her is she was so confident, and she also directed many episodes. Yes. Officially directed, but she really directed every episode she was in, to be honest with you, because she'd be like, Why, what are we doing here? Why don't you – or yeah. she would give you notes as an actor, and so you just – you were just like, oh, am I doing it right, Susan? You know, you would just feel like, oh, I don't want to mess up. She'll call me out. She'll call me out. <laughs> and and she, she could play the – I mean, we're talking about her in, intense side, but let's make no mistake about it. You saw it, Tracy. She could play the gentle and lovey side too, couldn't she, very well? Oh, she's a lovely, sweet person. Yes. Yeah, she is. She's just strong, and she knows her stuff, and she um, isn't afraid to – Stand up for what she thinks right. Amazing lady, just like yourself. And um, even though we're at the end here, I'm still going to sneak in just a few minutes because, you know, your faith is something that is very dear to your heart. Uh, I had Brenda Epperson on a few weeks ago, which was a big treat for me. And I had met Brenda in Los Angeles many years ago, uh, early in my career. And she was just as friendly and uh, wonderful as I first remember her. And um, her faith is also dear to her. And you went on a journey of discovering this faith, but, you know, just due to time, unfortunately, basically you, you learned about your, your, your difficult situations and what you went through. You kind of started to put everything together, didn't you, as time went on? Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, I started going to therapy. I, I actually had a prior marriage. I was going through a divorce. I was a terrible wife. I mean, it was just a mess. He actually ended up going to jail for domestic violence. And so 
so I, we started going to counseling, he and I, and then when it, when I realized you can't resolve and dissolve a marriage at the same time, we were going through a divorce and in counseling. And anyway, so my therapist, I kept trying to like stay with therapy because I said, I want to, I do want a marriage. I mean, can you teach me how to do it right? And he was asking the kind of guy I wanted. And I described this, you know, amazing guy that any woman would describe. And my therapist looks at me, he's like, yeah, he wouldn't be interested in you. (laughs) We have work to do. (laughs) And, um, so one of the things that happened was we got to a point in therapy and he's like, you have no foundation because, you know, I talked about not having any security and he's like, I can't, I have nothing to build on with you. You have to have something you believe in that's bigger than yourself. He's like, I don't care what it is, um, but you need to go research, you know, either, you know, new age philosophies or just, and, and it's right in line with acting. It's like every character, you need to know what their super objective is, their point of view of the world. And I didn't have any of that clarity. So um, he sent me out, and I went church shopping and um, started, you know, going different places and bouncing around, and uh, Christianity is just what made sense to me and spoke to me, and um, that's where I ended up to uh, decide to um, put my faith in. Right. And um, it's been the best thing for me. You know, I didn't have... I felt like I didn't have an earthly father, and I found out I had a heavenly father, and that was very comforting to me. Well, excellent description. And, and Tracy, um, I wanted to end uh, everything, and uh, I want to thank ClearSourceRadio.com for just letting me go a few minutes over. Um, I, you know, I thought I had this all planned out, Tracy, but apparently I didn't. <laughs> you know what? The best times are the ones that aren't planned, right? Just That's like right. with acting. It's, especially when you're... Those are the best moments. Those are the ones that win the Academy Awards, the improv. That's right. And when yeah. you're talking to someone as... Uh, wonderful as yourself, you know, you just don't want to stop. So, um, oh. I, but I noticed that at the end of your book, and when you sum everything up, you've mentioned your faith now, uh, because I can relate to this in my life, that forgiveness mm-hmm. is something that maybe you don't even really learn about until the end. But in regards to your mother and father, and I'm certainly not trying to put words in your own mouth, but I know for me, forgiveness was big with my biological father and i got the sense that forgiveness was something very significant in your situation as well well i think the thing about forgiveness that i think where people get hung up is you have to have humility to forgive because i had to realize guess what i've made bad choices i've done rotten things i've offended people i've alienated not on you know either before I was aware or not realizing or whatever, but it's like as soon as you can humble yourself to realize that you're not perfect either, it's a lot easier for you to forgive other people when they're not perfect. And I think forgiveness begins with humility. Um, And so I think that's where I was able to get to and able to forgive my parents. Um, But, you know, in my parents' defense too, they've both asked for forgiveness. And there you go. In both beautiful ways. Um, I think I thought I had forgiven them out of my humility, but just like with honesty, I think there's different levels of forgiveness. And with both my parents, they have made gestures, and I know we don't have time to go into them, but some beautiful ways of like going to the deepest, really bottom of the ocean floor, putting everything so far down. Sure. And I know for me, Tracy. One day, my biological father, who I called Big Steve, having the same name, I didn't feel comfortable calling him dad. But one day he told me, 
that he was aware that he wasn't a father for me. He was sorry about that, but that he loved me and he was proud of me and that he was sorry that he wasn't there for me. So, you know, it's a very interesting experience when you decide to accept that, uh, just like you experienced someone saying, you know, I'm sorry, I can't change it. It should have been different, but I am sorry. And you know what I'll just say to my advice to people? If there's somebody who you're longing for that kind of um, an apology from, make it easy for them. Start with humility, being a safe place, because he must have gotten to a point with you where he felt he wouldn't be totally rejected or chastised. or You know, like when my dad came to me after years of hurt and finally said it, I said, I get it, Dad. Thank you so much. What do you want for lunch? It was, you know what I mean? It's like, make it safe for people to, you know, there's so many people that are just like such anger and vitriol towards people who have wronged them. Yes. It's hard for them to come and repent or, you know, with their hat in hand because they're human too. And it's hard to go into um, a lion's den if you think you're going to get attacked. Well, Tracy, um, uh, I will definitely end the show now and, um, but before you go, I just want to say I do hope you will come back because I would love to talk to with you about all kinds of different things. Um, we even left out some stories, your experiences in college and other things. But um, uh, I think we did touch on a lot of interesting topics, and I just can't thank you enough for being on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Well, it's a, truly a big honor for me. Uh, one thing I've learned about Tracy is she's an outstanding actress, but I think she's even more of an outstanding and amazing uh, woman, no doubt about it. So if I get in trouble from the bosses for going over, I will just say that it's been worth it, but I will uh, try to work on that next week for Ending on Time. And I want to thank you all to the listeners for tuning in and listening to two incredible ladies tonight. Um, I really appreciate it. And I want to say good night to you, and uh, hopefully I will uh, be uh, uh, having you tune in next week on Hollywood and Beyond. Thank you so much. Good night. Hi, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Do you happen to have a question or a comment for me? Or perhaps you feel that you might make an interesting guest here on Hollywood and Beyond. Whatever your reason may be, please feel free to contact me anytime directly at the show's official email address. That would be hollywoodandbeyondshow at gmail.com. That is hollywoodandbeyondshow at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you soon.